I guess I should actually have the mic in front of me. Well, I'm ready when everybody else is ready. I'm also ready. Let's All right. go. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am Ezra Klein. I am here with Sarah Cliff. Hi, we are Ezra. Not here with Matt Iglesias. He's in Wisconsin. I don't care where he is. He's not here. That's what matters to me. He could be anywhere, but he's not here. But we are here, and we're really excited about this episode. We, Sarah and I have been working a lot on this episode over the past couple of days. We want to dive into this debate on naloxone, which is a treatment for opioid abuse. And, and there's been a big paper on it, and it has split the public health community, split the drug treatment community, split the Twitter sphere. Uh, the, it the is the war- most raging debate on the, a working paper I've seen in a while. The war is raging, and the weeds is here to make sense of it all. So, Sarah, can you make some sense of it all? I can try. Um, you can. I, I can believe try. in you. I can do it. So I think before jumping into the paper, it's helpful just to set some context around the size of the problem we're dealing with. Why naloxone matters, why access to naloxone matters, is because the opioid epidemic is really, really bad right now. There were nearly 64,000 people who died of drug overdoses in 2016. At least two-thirds of those were linked to opioids in some way, anything from prescription painkillers to heroin to fentanyl. The total drug overdose deaths were higher than deaths linked to guns, car crashes, or even HIV AIDS during the height of the epidemic. So we are talking about a really massive public health crisis, and the CDC does not think this is getting better. Some preliminary data from 2017 suggests last year was even worse. So one of the things you've seen states doing is trying to pass laws that address the opioid epidemic. And one of the things they're doing is trying to expand access to naloxone, a drug that has become increasingly available to reverse the effects of an opioid overdose. This is something, if it's administered, and it's pretty easy to administer either nasally or as an injection, that it can essentially start start a withdrawal process. From what I understand, it's pretty uncomfortable to take naloxone. Which is awful. Which is awful. Yeah. So we're talking about fevers, chills, sweating, vomiting, but it's better than dying. Yeah, it you saves know? you. <laughs> it saves your it saves your life. And so what we've seen over, you know, the past few years is growing access to naloxone and every state to some level liberalizing their naloxone laws. So starting with letting first responders carrying it, moving on to laws, um, something like a standing order, where essentially you have a public health official provide a prescription to everybody in their community for naloxone. So if I go into the pharmacy, I don't need to go to the doctor first. They can just give it to me. Yeah, they did this in Baltimore, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Yeah, Lena Wen, the um, health commissioner, there is a huge advocate for naloxone access. Um, Former Ezra Klein show guest. Oh, so there go you go. Go back and look at that. <laughs> and you also th- see another popular type of law is immunity for people who are prescribing or administering the drug. So if you you know happen to have naloxone, but also are carrying some kind of illicit drug, they want to make sure you use that naloxone if you see someone else overdosing. They don't want you to be wary of using it, bringing that person into an emergency room. And the same for bystanders, that I cannot get in trouble for delivering naloxone to someone and harming them in some way. The idea is I was trying to be a good Samaritan. So there's a wide range of these laws. 
The paper we want to talk about today essentially looks at what effect these laws have had. It comes from two economists, um, Jennifer Doliak at the University of Virginia, Anita Mukherjee at the University of Wisconsin, and they want to see what this is doing. So they go through a whole amount of data looking at possession of opioids, crime data, arrests, how many people are dying from opioids, how many people are going to the emergency room for opioid-related incidents. And the findings that have been most controversial from this paper are that, first, they estimate that there has been an increase in opioid deaths in the Midwest that they attribute to these expanding naloxone laws. And second, that there's been an increase in monthly arrests for opioid sales, about 1.9 per million people. So The theory that these two economists come up with, the part of this paper that has been so controversial, is they make an argument that a drug like naloxone, it creates a level of moral hazard, that it makes it less costly and less dangerous for someone to use opioids because you have this drug that can essentially reverse the effects. So they make this argument and they argue that the data that they present in this paper shows that naloxone might be having the unintended consequence of increasing opioid abuse, that we want to use this as a way to tamp down an opioid, an opioid deaths. We want to use this as a way to tamp the opioid crisis, that a drug like naloxone could, even though, you know, everyone is implementing these laws with the best of intentions, could actually make it less costly for people to use opioids, to move on to more deadly opioids like fentanyl, because they know that there is this back out option, that they will have naloxone as a way to get out of an overdose. Now, this is not widely accepted. This is exactly where the controversy is. I'm summarizing their argument. But they look at things like an increase in arrests, an increase in opioid-related emergency room visits. And I will say there is not a national increase in mortality. They do not show opioid deaths going up nationwide, but they do find an increase in opioid-related deaths in the Midwest specifically. And we can talk about why they think that particular finding is happening in that particular place, they essentially put out this finding that has been very controversial in the public health world, that it is possible that these naloxone liberalization laws, that they could have some harmful effects on the people that they are trying to help. So a couple things here. So number one, and I think it's important to put this paper in the broader context, this is a stunningly counterintuitive finding Or at least I almost don't want to call it counterintuitive because in some ways that actually is intuitive. But it is a a, a finding that goes against a grain. It is not what previous research on naloxone has found, which is something that we will talk about. And so it has attracted a huge amount of attention. When there was a previous paper that came out and found what a lot of people expected to find on naloxone liberalization laws, which is that they saved lives, nobody talked about it at all. It it like came. We didn't do a weed segment on it. There is a real interest in journalism, in the media. Media, in, in the public health community, and all these communities, when you find something surprising, you get a lot of coverage. They wrote the paper in a fairly controversial way. They talk about, and I think probably one of the paper's worst moments, they talk about there being naloxone parties where people get together and take a bunch of opioids, have naloxone on hand. They source that to some state legislator somewhere. And if you've ever studied any drug crisis ever, like don't source things to 
shit state legislators have studied heard. anything that state like, legislators that's have not, said. That's not a strong empirical strategy. But something I want to say about this paper, and we'll go we'll go through it because I think we're going to structure this episode. First, we want to make sure you really we really understand what is in the paper. Then I think we're going to talk about the criticisms of it, and then sort of zoom out to to the broader issues here. But I do want to read their conclusion because as disruptive as some of their findings are. Their conclusion itself is almost banal and has gotten, I think, somewhat less coverage. So they write, our findings do not necessarily imply that we should stop making naloxone available to individuals suffering from opioid addiction or those who are at risk of overdose. They do imply the public health community should acknowledge and prepare for the behavioral effects we find here. Our results show broad naloxone access may be limited in its ability to reduce the epidemic's death toll because not only does it not address the root causes of addiction, but it may exacerbate them. Looking forward, our results suggest that naloxone's effects may depend on the availability of local drug treatment. When treatment is available to people who need help overcoming their addiction, broad naloxone access is more beneficial in its effects. Increasing access to drug treatment then might be a necessary complement to naloxone access in curbing the opioid overdose epidemic. Now, if you had taken me aside before any of this came out and you said, Ezra, is a drug that takes people who have overdosed and are about to die and makes it so they don't die enough to stop the opioid epidemic, I would say that's (laughs) stupid. And if you had said, well, if we're going to roll out that drug, should we also be rolling out a comprehensive drug treatment strategy, I would say, of course, that is common sense. And so that is the conclusion of this paper. And so for all the controversy over some of the individual findings, and I do think the controversy has called into question some of the findings in in a serious way. I actually think that both the paper's authors and the people who they are in a dispute with largely agree on where things should go, which is, one, we should not outlaw naloxone, but two, that in order to treat something as complex and difficult as the opioid epidemic, you need a comprehensive treatment strategy. Look, if you are looking at heart disease and you said, well, when people are having a cardiac event, we can do an emergency bypass. And you said to me, what's going to happen if the only thing we roll out is free cardiac emergency bypasses all across the country with nothing else? And I would say, well, you're not going to fix the heart disease problem. You're going to keep some people from dying during an acute event, but they're going to die later from heart disease. I mean, you need to help them with their, their diet and, 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 and their health and their exercise and you know, knowing the, the signals of when to go to a doctor and all kinds of different things that are important for people who are suffering from, from, from this kind of ailment. And I just want to note that's also the conclusion here. So there's a lot to dig into here, but but I also in some ways want to turn down the temperature on the debate because I think there's a an, an endpoint here that is more consensus-oriented than one the writing in the rest of the paper would imply, and certainly the reception to the paper would imply. And I think so that actually goes to one of the findings that has been the most controversial is this idea that opioid, that access to naloxone could increase opioid-related mortality, which is a finding that they don't see nationally, but they do see in the Midwest. And then one of the other things they explore a little bit in the paper is availability of treatment. And they find that in the Midwest, it has some of the lowest per capita opioid treatment options. So that kind of backs up their argument that just increasing naloxone access on its own is not going to be the thing that solves it. If you look at a place like the Midwest, which appears to have very few treatment options, like you think about what happens to someone who used naloxone in that in that area, I think one of the things our 
colleague Ramon Lopez has written about pretty astutely is that addiction is a disease and it is very foolish to expect someone who uses naloxone to, you know, come back from an overdose, spend a few days in a hospital and be cured as an opioid addict. That is not how the drug works. It treats an acute situation. It does not treat an addiction. But I think what makes the most sense, and maybe I'll kick it back to you, Ezra, on this, is to kind of walk through like what is actually happening in this paper. Because I think a lot of the debate that has been happening that can be a bit confusing to follow is really in the methods of the paper, you know, the data, how they prove what they say they are proving. So I think it's worth, and you have some notes ready on this, kind of walking through like what exactly it is, what data they're studying, and how that gets them to the conclusions that they get to. Yeah. So the main thing they're doing is they're doing what economists do, which is trying to take advantage of what they would call natural experiment. Different states are rolling out these naloxone laws uh, at different moments. And so they are trying to look at the immediate aftermath of these laws and see, well, what happens in the state? Now, one big criticism of the paper is that they are rolling together three kinds of laws. One kind of law provides legal immunity to prescribers of naloxone, which there's not any evidence that anybody has ever been, to my knowledge, uh, prosecuted for prescribing naloxone, so it's not clear why that would have a big effect on anything. Another is providing legal immunity to laypersons who administer naloxone. Another is allowing third-party prescriptions for naloxone, right? Like in Baltimore, where I can go in and get a um, prescription for naloxone that then I can use if I see somebody OD'd on a street corner. So that's their main treatment variable. Did a state roll out some kind of law, any kind of law that in any way can be seen increasing access or cultural permission to use naloxone. Um, they also assume that these laws, once rolled out, have an immediate impact, which is not how laws like this tend to work. That's another big piece of criticism that we'll, we'll get to a little bit later. So then they begin trying to look at what is the cultural effect of these laws. And, and here's where things honestly get a little dicey. So they say that using data on Google searches, we find that naloxone access laws increased internet searches for naloxone by 7%. They then find that after the access law takes effect, Google... <laughs> Google searches for drug rehab, which they say is a proxy for interest in drug treatment, fell by 1.4%. Now, I want to note something here. That 1.4% is an extremely small change. Um, they say it is small but marginally significant. It does not have a p-value of 0.05, which is normally what you're looking at. It's a p-value of a little bit better than 0.1. Um, so one, it is not a strong effect. It is small both in its total size and in whether we are statistically sure whether it even happened. And then two, there are a lot of possible reasons something like that can happen, particularly when you're dealing with an effect that's small. So they then say, Look, the direction of the change is consistent with the hypothesis that naloxone access reduces opioid abusers' interest in treatment for their addiction. I do not think a statement like that is honestly justified by the level of difference we're seeing there and how indirect the measurement tool is. So, so, so that's the kind of thing where this paper, I think, gets into some trouble. They also say, though, that in the aftermath of these laws, you get a arrest for possession and sales of opioids increased by 17% and 27%. Opioid-related visits to the emergency room increased by 15%. Opioid-related theft increased by 30%. They also find that places with fewer drug treatment facilities per capita experienced bigger increases in mortality when they broadened naloxone access. Uh, alternatively, easier access to treatment is associated associated with more beneficial policy effects. So there's a lot going on in this paper, but basically what they're doing is they're taking this treatment variable. Did the state 
liberalize its naloxone laws. They're then looking at some stuff, some of which seems directly related, like what happened to mortality from opioids, which we more or less can measure, and some of which is very like third order, like what happened to people searching drug rehab. And then they use that to draw some pretty big conclusions, not just about what is naloxone doing directly, but how is it changing the culture? How is it changing people's interest in getting rid of their addiction or treating their addiction? How is it changing their propensity to do crime? Um, One thing on the crime that I, I do think is notable is that they do find an increase in opioid-related crime. But then they do something else that I think is important, which is they say, well, look, if you're thinking about crime, because it could be that with naloxone, all of a sudden people are getting picked up, they are, are, are getting you know brought back to life, somebody notices they stole, and all of a sudden it's very clear that the theft is related to opioid crime. So they say, the policy-relevant question is whether the total amount of crime increases. And they say, look, this is hard to estimate, but probably maybe not. So they find a 4.8 coefficient, which I don't want to get into what that means, but basically they find a very, very, very small possible increase in crime, but it is not significant overall. So they say the social costs of naloxone laws in terms of additional property crime are small. Again, I think if you're reading the big picture of this paper, you would think, oh, it has this huge effect on crime. And then you read into the details and they say, well, actually crime doesn't really go up, but crime that we're classifying as opioid-related crime maybe does. And then people say, well, maybe that's because the laws are leading to an increase in classification of crimes that were otherwise opioid-related, but people didn't know that before. And the, the paper just has a lot of stuff like that in it. I think reading this that there is a lot to be said for the overall idea of this paper, which is that if you just give people naloxone, it's not going to make them better. It's going to stop them from dying. That's what that drug does. I think some of the other stuff is not as firmly grounded but I also think that the, the there's a kind of like what, what Tyler Cowen would call a mood affiliation. This paper feels like it is against treatment even though I think it isn't. And so it has been very upsetting to people. I think some of the people who have written about it, I think there is a certain class of writer who likes embracing hard policy truths. And is like very quick to go and say like, we'll see, you know, Medicaid doesn't help anybody. Naloxone, you know, um, and and these things, one, obviously often aren't true, but two, it then creates a debate that is more controversial and dogmatic and black and white than the underlying research itself actually is. And I I think that happened here. But so that's my my overall take on the paper. Yeah, I think one of the things that's going on in this paper is that it's coming to a controversial finding through some methods that are decently easy to quibble with. This is the most I've ever seen journalists, like Twitter's academics, digging into the methods of a paper, looking at all the- Since the Medicaid organ wars of (laughs) (laughs) 2000-whatever. But even that- It was less personal. It was less personal. It felt less- I remember the Oregon, you know, Medicaid wars of the, you know, Baker- era. And it felt less personal then. Also, the paper was more mixed. The paper was more mixed. And, you know, so that's that's an episode for another day. Sure. But I think one of the things that's going on, like with the Google search data, with the arrest data, is that this is a paper that left itself somewhat vulnerable to some pretty strong critiques. And by taking that data and coming to some very strong 
conclusions. You know, even though I think at the end, like you said, they get ratcheted down a little bit. I think it's, I think when I see like the public health reaction, the the big fear, and I do understand this, is that you are going to see legislators in conservative states look at this and say, you know, we'll, we'll see like, why are we, why are we doing these laws? You know, we should limit access to naloxone. I don't think that's the right way to read this paper, but I think it is written in a way that could make it easy to justify those. Do you want to take a break and then get into these criticisms? Yes. I got to admit that I have advertised some strange things across my time in podcasting, some things that, you know, didn't seem to me to be highly related to the audience for a policy podcast, but were nevertheless, I hope you bought them. I hope you used our promo code. But The Great Courses, which has been a supporter of the show from the beginning, it is right in our sweet spot. The Great Courses is a service. You sign up, you get access to 9,000 video lectures. You can watch them on your tablet, on your smartphone, on your computer. You can listen to them, anything you want to do. And you can learn about anything. I mean, if you want to learn real skills like cooking and photography, you can do that. If you want to learn about economics and law and psychology and social psychology and politics and and, and all the things we talk about on the show, you can do that. You can dip in of one into another. I mean, it is a way to do the kind of learning that hopefully we are helping you do on the show, but directed by you. It doesn't have to be what we're interested in that week. It can be what you're interested in that day, that moment, that hour. A particular course that I think relates to something we wish we were covering a little bit more on the weeds, but I think y'all would be fascinated by, is thinking about cybersecurity from cybercrime to cyber warfare. Uh, It is a cybersecurity expert, Paul Rosenweig. He's exploring big data, digital espionage, the tools we can use to protect ourselves from cybercrime. If you're following the news right now, you know that cybersecurity and cyber warfare are driving it. (laughs) And this is only going to be more true in in the coming years. So you should sign up for The Great Courses Plus, check out this course and be primed on it and and, and ready to understand it on on a theory level, on a conceptual level as we go into these stories coming up. I know you're going to love The Great Courses Plus. And even if you don't, look, you just need to give it a try. There's no risk here at all. They are giving listeners of The Weeds a special free month of unlimited access to all of their lectures, but only if you sign up through our special URL. That is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. Again, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. You get a free month. If you don't like it, you can cancel, but you're going to like it. You're going to keep going. That is at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. So now that we've gone through the paper itself and its methods and its finding, it makes sense to turn to kind of the controversy and the firestorm that it has turned up. And I think I kind of divide it into two buckets in my head. One is a criticism of the the methods that they use, their research tactics, and whether those are valid. And another is of the conclusion that they draw. And I think they're, they're intertwined in that you can attack the conclusion by attacking the methods. And so, but I think it, it helps me a little bit to think through those separately. And I think actually Ezra's summary gets at some of the critiques of the methods that it seems like there's a lot of space for confounding variables, for things that could affect the outcomes. One of the things that um, there's a great blog post on the journal Health Affairs that kind of runs through some of these things. One of the things that's happening in the background, for example, is Medicaid expansion. Some of these states are expanding Medicaid at the same time, which is a huge confounding variable given that Medicaid expansion is going to get a lot more people covered, is going to likely increase access to naloxone um, 
in a way that would be pretty significant to we a study. We know it brings people into the ER. It brings people into the emergency room. So you can question, you know, is this increase in emergency room related opioid visits? Is that due to more people using opioids or is it more people having insurance and being able to go to the emergency room? Another thing that's a little bit hard to suss out, that we actually had a great piece at Vox from someone who works with with a lot of opioid addicts, that people who are using naloxone just might become more connected to the healthcare system, that an increase in opioid-related emergency room visits doesn't necessarily mean, it certainly means more people are seeking treatment for overdose and addiction. It does not mean more people are getting addicted or more people are overdosing. It's just that they are finding their way into the emergency room. If there is more naloxone use, one of the instructions as often given is to go to the ER after naloxone because you're going to be going through these terrible withdrawal systems that would be better managed in a professional healthcare setting. So I think there's definitely some questions about the emergency room findings and if they indicate what the authors think that they indicate. So I think that's a big one that I've been a little bit skeptical about that particular part of the paper. So one thing about this health affairs piece is it's by Richard Frank, Keith Humphreys, and friend of the pod, Harold Pollack. And these are the best drug and crime researchers out there. And one thing you see in their piece is just a much more sophisticated understanding of the drug and crime and policy response context going on. So here, too, I want to quote what their actual their, – their full-on conclusion is. We believe the best interpretation of Dolek and Mukherjee's findings is their main treatment variable, naloxone laws, thus far have had little impact on naloxone use or non-medical opioid use during the period studied. This disappointing pattern commands attention and follow-up from both public health practitioners and public health researchers. We find powerful reasons for skepticism regarding their strong claims that naloxone laws created offsetting and self-defeating moral hazard effects. We therefore believe the paper's title and main argument overstep the empirical results. What, what they are doing is they take aim at like the foundation of the paper. Like what Doliak and Mukherjee are studying is how these laws changed everything. And what they're saying, what, what, what Frank Humphreys and Pollock are saying is these laws probably didn't change anything, that these laws are weak, that a bunch of them started in 2015. They're not going to move that fast, that in some of the cases we know that the law was passed and like the West Virginia sheriffs were refusing to even carry naloxone. So the idea that there was going to be some huge effect from that, it's very, very, very unlikely that a bunch of these laws were too small to be expected to have any impact. Again, some of this immunity stuff, well, people were immune in practice before. Nobody was getting prosecuted for this. There's not a reason to think that would change anything. The idea that Google results for naloxone are changing over this time, well, yeah, you pass a law, some people Google it. 7% off of a low base of Googling naloxone anyway is not that huge. On the one hand, they say the actual thing that the original paper is saying is mechanical and undeniable. All else equal, any life-saving intervention for opioid users will increase the number of living opioid users, just as reviving people after heart attacks increases the number of people with heart disease. But they just look at the basic idea that these laws are such a big deal and they say there's no reason to believe that in studying these laws, which these three people do, that that's not how these laws work, that a bunch of these laws aren't nearly as big as the authors of the original paper think they are and that as such, all of these conclusions, almost whether they're right or wrong, they can't possibly follow from the analysis. 
again, I found myself in a little bit of a weird middle ground on this paper because I, I find the criticisms of it very persuasive. And there's been a, a kind of side debate about, you know, was the debate on Twitter too personal? I sort of looked at some of this and thought, oh, these people don't use the Twitter I use. <laughs> like, everybody's like, garbage oh my fire. God. Yeah, like everybody's like, oh my God, people are getting so personal on Twitter. I was like, Yes. Yes, come they are. Come take a look at Ezra's mentions. <laughs> yeah, c- c- come look at like all the people photoshopping my head going into an oven. <laughs> like, don't tell me about how personal Twitter gets. Um, so one, there's been this kind of side debate of whether people are being jerks about the paper on Twitter, which definitely some people are being. And I think like the public health community has had this moment of reckoning of being like, we have this nice little Twitter community over here. And all of a sudden, all you assholes are in it. And I am not comfortable with that at all. But in a, in a broader sense, I think that the paper point that bringing people back from death with an Alexone is not going to treat their underlying opioid addiction, is not probably going to treat underlying opioid mortality over a time period because people, if they keep using, eventually the Alexone isn't going to be there and that there could be some moral hazard if people smartly, which is what they're supposed to be doing, keep Nalexone nearby when they're using opioids. I mean, Sure. In some kind of, uh, as the authors here put it, mechanical way, that is how something like this works. But the the big picture interpretation being, you know, laid to rest on these laws, this does somewhat feel to me like econo- like a, a couple of economists went out. They found the kind of thing that economists really love finding, which is a natural experiment. And then because they found that, they overread what the experiment was telling them. They, they wanted the laws to do more work than those laws could do for them as, a, as an explanatory variable. Again, I want to note that there's another paper here that uses somewhat different, they're not, I think, incredibly different methodologies, and finds the opposite conclusion, which is that it somewhat reduces mortality, you know, over a time period by bringing people back and, you know, da-da-da-da. I don't feel so sure-footed adjudicating the debate between those two papers, but it actually makes me more confident in the Frank Humphreys Pollock argument, which is that if what you're doing is looking at these laws and depending on how you read the aftermath, coming to somewhat different conclusions about them, it makes me a little bit skeptical that the laws are this primary variable because what we're basically doing is looking at different ways of trying to control for the other variables. That The laws are such a powerful instrument that they're getting you to this to this big place. Right. Yeah. So that paper, I actually brought some data on the paper because I thought it was interesting to, to look at that? as a contrast. So this was a paper is from Daniel Reese at um, the University of Colorado. That was published just about a year ago in February 2017, also as a working paper, which has become another huge side angle yeah, to this debate. Yeah, I am debate. super on it. Yeah, the, <laughs> we do a lot of working papers yes. on the weeds. <laughs> I think there's a big difference between public health academia where you would not release something until it's peer-reviewed versus economics academia where releasing working papers is a normal Practice that has also got caught up into this. Anyway, is like fucking have at it, y'all. <laughs> this is <laughs> working a, papers for everybody, and this is uh, of course an NVER working paper. This is Daniel Reese one. One thing I liked about the methods of this is that they're looking at particular types of laws. So in the Doliak Mukherjee paper, we're kind of grouping them all together. This one gets a little more specific. It looks at um, a naloxone access laws and a Good Samaritan law. So the Good Samaritan law essentially protects someone f- from any sort of prosecution if they distribute naloxone. And the naloxone access laws are ones that are trying to make it more readily available at pharmacies. And so their findings, like you said, Estra, are pretty much the opposite. They don't get into crime and those sort of things. They are just looking at mortality data. 
they find that the adoption of the excess laws is associated with a 9 to 11% reduction in opioid deaths, and the estimated effect of the Good Samaritan laws is comparable, but I'm not going to get into a lot of the methodologies. It's less statistically significant. And they do not find an increased use of recreational prescription painkillers. So, and one of the things they do see, because they are able to trace these over years, is that the effects do get stronger over time. And that kind of makes sense intuitively, right? That the more people know about these laws, the more people realize like, oh, I saw someone else use naloxone on a friend and they were fine. Like, I'd be okay doing that on my friend. What I really liked in that health affairs blog post you were reading from Ezra, and I think the thing that I've kind of been frustrated to see some of the criticism wave off is the agreement that if we have treatments like naloxone, we'll likely have more opioid addicts alive in the United States. And that's, that's, Fine. That's a good outcome if you're keeping these people alive. That is better than having, you know, the number that the CDC reports, you know, 64,000 in 2016 go up to 70,000, go up to 80,000. I think that is a, you know, it is framed as a negative of naloxone in some ways in this paper, but I don't think that's necessarily a worrying finding. The worrying finding is like, well, what happens to those people? Is it going to be a cycle of naloxone use and overdose and, you know, continuing through that? Or is there going to be a treatment option for those people, which is kind of where this paper lands. But I've seen some of the criticism seem to like brush this aside and try and say, you know, it's dangerous to put out research like this because people are going to tamp down on naloxone access and it's going to be bad for opioid users. I, you know, I, I could see this Reese paper, the one I was just summarizing, having very similar similar effects. Um, you know, if they were to measure the amount of opioid abuse that you could see, you know, increases in that space. And that wouldn't really surprise me. I think it's kind of an interesting question of like, well, what is what is the goal of increasing naloxone access? And if your goal is saving lives, you might need to do it in a way that the authors of this paper are talking about in conjunction with some kind of treatment. Yeah, there's just a weirdness to this whole discussion. So I think the way to ask yourself, is naloxone working, is to say when somebody is dying from an overdose and you administer naloxone, do they die? And the answer is no. And so then you ask yourself, you know, because now here's a broader policy question about the opioid epidemic, long-term are opioid users dying in high numbers? And the answer is yes. And so, well, that's not a naloxone problem necessarily. <laughs> that's uh, like everything else going on problem. Like naloxone is like a treatment for if somebody is overdosing right now. It is not a treatment for the opioid epidemic. It just isn't. So there is a, another piece that to me has been actually, despite coming out before, I believe this paper did, the most helpful piece for me in thinking about all this. And, and it was published at um, a website, Vox.com. I've heard oh, of it. heard of it. But it's by a philosopher named Brendan DeKennessy. You could search philosopher Vox, opioid addiction, but I think the piece is something like, people are dying because we have the wrong theory of addiction. And what he goes through as somebody with a, a, a real training in, in philosophy of the mind is we have going way, 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 way back to Socrates, this idea that the way to understand somebody's preferences is to understand the actions they undertake. The way to understand what somebody wants is to see what they actually do. And in modern times, we have an overwhelming amount of empirical evidence that that's 
not true. This idea that, you know, your revealed preference, which is, you know, to, to use the example he uses, that a father took opioids, that a father injected heroin instead of picking his children up from school, that that represents his true self is bullshit, that there's all kinds of biochemical things going on. And that we do a lot of things that we wish we didn't do. He writes, we are in the grip of a simple but misleading answer to one of the oldest questions of philosophy. Do people always do what they think is best? In other words, do our actions reflect our beliefs and values? When someone with addiction chooses to take drugs, does this show that what she truly cares about is taking drugs or might something be more complicated uh, that's actually going on? And the reason this matters is that if you have that theory of the mind, if you have that theory that what people are doing reflects like a like a semi, at least even a semi-rational process of what to do, that's where you get into these ideas about moral hazard and rock bottom. Again, going back to Kennedy, writes, consider the popular idea that someone with addiction has to hit rock bottom before she can begin true recovery. If addiction is due to a failure to appreciate the bad consequences of getting high, then sure, the best route to recovery might be for the person to experience firsthand how bad those consequences really are. If you take that idea, then in the long run, the way to save addicts from themselves is to make it harder, not easier, to pursue the lifestyle they so clearly prefer. I think understanding that as a debate we're having puts into a different relief what the debate about this paper really is. Because if the idea is that people are making uh, a decision, like a somewhat logical decision based on a weighing of the, the benefits and consequences. Well, no naloxone, so you can't be brought back if you overdose. Maybe you don't want to die, and that makes you less likely to overdose. Like, that is the moral hazard theory of this. But that is not how people work. Again, now I'm quoting from the paper, what University of Michigan neuroscientist Kent Barrage calls the wanting system, which regulates our cravings for things like food and sex and drugs using signals based on dopamine, has powerful control over behavior. Its cravings are insensitive to long-term consequences, and the research indicates that addictive drugs can hijack the wanting system, manipulating dopamine directly to generate cravings that are far stronger, particularly in people with a biological predilection to addiction, than the rest of us experience. When the desire for heroin wins out, that doesn't mean the father doesn't care doesn't mean he cares more about getting high than he cares about his children. It means that the rational side of him lost the struggle. His behavior is being controlled by another part of his mind. And that to me is the thing here. Herman has written about how the central, after years of covering drugs, he says the single biggest reason America's failing in its response to the opioid ep epidemic is the stigma around addiction, the belief that addiction is a moral failing on the part of, of the addict. And when you believe that, then what you begin to think about doing is ratcheting up the consequences higher and higher and higher and higher and higher. And we've just seen time and time again that it doesn't work. I mean, the consequences in these people's lives are already beyond awful. Their whole life is regulated by trying to get, in the, these cases, opioids, at this point, not even to feel good, just to feel normal, just to not have withdrawal. By the way, withdrawal that naloxone puts you into. One of the weird things about this whole thing, which I got it by reading the conclusion of the original paper, is that if you listen to people talk about the policy, you'd say, well, there's no argument here. Everybody thinks we should have drug treatment. But the reason I think this has aroused so much upset is that in truth, 
American drug policy, American thinking, and, and, and just like most people just generally, they're like always on the knife's edge. It is work to remember addiction is a disease. It is work to remember that people who are addicted do not want to be doing the things they are doing. It is work to remember that at a certain point, like people who are like you and me, not addicted to heroin, that if you and I, it is possible. Um, I don't know what my transmitters are like if exposed to, to opioids really, but it is possible that you know we could fall into this and not be able to get back out. And that we're always on a knife's edge of falling back into that view and that the the, the naloxone debate will will kind of push us back there, right? It just shows, well, look, you give these people a way to come back from the dead after an overdose and they do it more. And I, I think that if you take the right theory of mind here and also if you take the correct interpretation of every paper and every piece we have talked about, it just says addiction is really hard. And you need a really comprehensive, multidimensional strategy to deal with it that takes very seriously both that people are probably going to use and that to get them out of using is going to be a difficult trial and error, halting two steps forward, three steps back, four steps forward, two steps back process. And that like you just have to be ready for that. Right. In a weird way, it seems like one of the worries that this paper raises is the idea that you might take away some kind of like stigma from naloxone, that naloxone shouldn't be the thing you just rely on. And again, like I think there isn't actually great evidence that people are, you know, going to naloxone parties, but it essentially suggests one of the bad things that could happen around naloxone is that people will just see it as, oh, I'll bring this, I'll be at a some kind of party involving heroin and naloxone will be there and that will make this a safe situation. I think the stigma that is much more worrying to me is the stigma that still exists around treatment for opioid addiction. Last summer, I was doing some reporting in a city in West Virginia that has been super, super hard hit by the opioid epidemic and talking to a guy there who, you know, essentially lost his job because he was using methadone. He was trying to come off of an opioid addiction. He had a prescription for methadone. But his employers basically said, well, we can't have a meth user, you know, working here. And it was like, well, what are you what are you going to do at that point? Like lose your livelihood or continue to seek treatment? You know, he decided to stick with the treatment. But those are situations that people are facing and like the energy and like the I mean, I would be much more worried about stigma around those sorts of treatments still being quite strong than some kind of stigma against naloxone decreasing. Because I think if we're talking about actually getting, you know, having recovered opioid addicts, like that is the one that is going to stand stand in the way of, of getting there. Yeah. And look, I, I think you see it in our precedent. Is it one, one to me of the great ironies and sadnesses of our policy age is that you have this whole discourse about how Donald Trump got elected because of this mounting despair in white working class communities that are ravaged by opioids and, and, and they were demanding to be noticed and, and they needed help. And so they, they went for the guy who's going to be just a wrecking ball on the system. And whether or not that's true, whether or not that is a true account of why people voted for Donald Trump, 
The fact of the matter is Donald Trump has not spent 15 fucking minutes trying to understand the opioid crisis. When he talks about it, he talks about it in a completely ridiculous way. Hillary Clinton, for her part, from very early on in the campaign, had decided this was a real problem, had really thought about it, had gathered extremely good experts on it, had come out with a detailed plan on it. But instead of having that, we have just this, uh, these absurdities from Trump. So he's just come out with a new plan to combat the opioid epidemic, which Herman Lopez describes as more punishment, fewer prescriptions, and more treatment. Um, he says the plan can be broken down into three parts, a slew of law enforcement-focused policies aiming to increase penalties for drug dealing and trafficking, including mandatory minimums and in some cases a death penalty. The White House is also taking steps to cut back on opioid prescriptions, hoping to reduce them by as much as a third. And then there are vague promises on increasing access to addiction treatment and adopting harm reduction approaches. I don't think you need to spend a huge amount of time looking at the history of drug policy in America to say that just continuously trying to crack down on drug dealers has not done the trick. And nor do I think that you have to spend a lot of time wondering, well, why is it that Donald Trump seems so uninterested in how to increase access to addiction treatment, how to do addiction treatment, how to fund addiction treatment, as opposed to being very interested and talking off the cuff a lot about how great it would be to execute drug dealers, right? He's got like a real crime and punishment intuition. He has a view uh, of, of how this works. Works that is, uh, I think, like it's quasi-medieval, and we're just not getting anywhere on it. And we're not getting anywhere on it because the people in power are not taking it seriously, and they they, they don't have a, a strong model of, of what's going on here. Well, I'll say that middle prong also isn't – that's already happening, and yes. it really isn't a government one as much as it is like the AMA, and like yep. you see a huge decline in opioid prescriptions all, already before the government intervenes. But that's not where the opioid epidemic is anymore. Right. You know, it's more moving towards heroin and fentanyl and other drugs. And this is just one of these things where it would be nice if what was happening in the government's opioid response is we were funding huge amounts of research into what works here. We were having discussions about what is the suite of policy decisions and policy approaches in which naloxone should be embedded, right? Sure. Liberalized Naloxone laws, but what else? How do we do it all? How do we have a comprehensive policy? I think if you want to see this done in an interesting and, uh, and strong way, you should search a piece Herman Lopez did on Vermont's uh, approach to the opioid epidemic. We will put it in show notes. But you could do it, right? You could, you can, you can take this seriously, and and you can try to come up with comprehensive responses, which even then, because this is hard, are only going to be somewhat successful. But we're not doing it. We're not, you know, we have these papers, people are arguing over them, but but they're not, I mean, I, I just do want to, at the very least, give this a mention that at the very top levels of the American government, at the places where we need this to be, to be taken seriously, as sort of off and strange as a debate over these different papers has been, we're at least, those are at least a real debate over, over, over what to do. Whereas at the top levels of the American government, for all the talk about it, there was a Chris Christie opioid commission. Just nothing of real value is happening. They're not, they're not appropriating nearly enough money. They're not bringing in the, the best research and best science and best theory of how addiction works. And we're not making a lot of progress. I think there is actually a lot more agreement on how hard this is and that you need comprehensive treatment plans. And, you know, that's true in the, the paper saying naloxone is a moral hazard. It's true in the paper saying it isn't. It's true in the response to the paper. And at the top levels of the American government, it is just not the case that the heavy level of interest seems to be in creating comprehensive treatment and harm reduction strategies. All right. That's the weeds. That's the weeds. <laughs> Thank you to all of you for being here, for listening to us talk about opioids. Thank you to Sarah Cliff, of course. It's always such a pleasure. 
Thank you to our producers, Griffin Tanner and Bridget Armstrong. The Weeds will be back on Friday. <laughs>